babies, just wanted to let you all know that Habibdi Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is super important to me and others because it's a progressive group of voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives that we see in right-wing and liberal media presently today. And so I want to recommend some shows uh, that are part of this network that I personally enjoy. So Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as Feel Rouge, which is an indigenous storytelling series that featured stories from indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger Media is listener supported, so please head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe where you can get subscriber specific content. So yeah, hope you all enjoy the show today. everyone. Uh, this episode of Hibibdi Please, we are super honored to be joined by Matthew Green, Canadian politician elected to represent the riding of Hamilton Centre in the House of Commons in the 2019 federal election. But before this, some of us were familiar with Matthew Green as a city councillor from 2014 to 2018, representing Ward 3. Um, and so how are you today? And can you tell us a little bit about yourself in the community? Ryan and I care a lot about Hamilton uh, because we were both students at McMaster and lived there uh, a bit. And we were both involved in very different ways in the community. So whether through McMaster or I was chair of the Hamilton Youth Advisory Committee for a number of years, and I sat on the Status of Women Committee and did some organizing as well. So we're so happy to have somebody from Hamilton on. Yeah, so no matter where you go, Hamilton will always be home. That's not just some cliche thing. Before the t-shirts were the t-shirts, I was 19 years old, leaving this city, thinking that I would never see my way back. Like when I left Hamilton in the 90s, it was not a place that you thought as a young person you'd have opportunities in. And I left and I went and saw the world a little bit. And when I came back, I recognized that no matter where I went, you know, here I was and, and I came back to a, a home. I came back to a family and a community and just continued to do that and certainly had the privilege of, of uh, you know, in, intersecting, working with you guys in various ways, formally, informally, directly and indirectly from your time here. And I'm sure, you know, Ryan will recall the, the meetings that, that we would have around the MSU and my call to that student union to be more radical in its approach to uh, to lobbying and to use those opportunities in ways that were not about getting institutional jobs, but about like shifting and shaking up institutional power. For those that are not familiar with my neighborhood, I would share with people that my former Ward 3 is to Hamilton what Hamilton is to the rest of the country. I talk about this quite a bit. I talk about how in the 60s and the 70s, you know, the blue-collar jobs that built this country quite literally with the steel, uh, the workers who could find good wages and benefits and pensions enough to raise their family and, and live comfortably, uh, we watched those opportunities disappear. We watched them evaporate in the 80s and the 90s with free trade, our jobs sold, not necessarily like overseas, but to states in, in America, which had less environmental restrictions, lower wages, no benefits. And it's just the erosion of the working class. Well, simultaneously, our generation, my generation, you can see the grays, were sold this myth of the dot-com era, of the ascendant 
person who learned how to code and set up a dot-com website and was able to become you know, rich overnight. And there was a lot of people who did that. And what we saw was a shift from people taking well-paying working jobs to this white-collar myth, right? This like unicorn myth of security and class ascension. We have now seen that that's proven to be a bit of a lie. It's been a wholesale lie. And so like many people, I sought out in my community like you all have and continue to do just observing and seeing the inherent injustices everywhere around us to see the suffering up close and to recognize that as activists and organizers, the idea of continuing to go to the tables of power, kind of hat in hand, asking them to do the right thing, it's just exhausting. And so I decided to run in 2014 as a city councilor and, uh, and kind of haven't looked back since. We're grateful for you being there. Um, I, I think we could always count on you as an ally, and I think we still can, even as, even as our, our demands change and grow. Right? We, I think you've done a good job of adapting and, and growing and changing with it, and that's always been refreshing to see. But let's talk about Hamilton a little bit more, actually, what's happening there right now as we speak. You know, our, our friends and, and organizers are, are getting, are running into the police, getting arrested um, as part of defund HPS because they are trying to um, protest for, to take action on homelessness in the middle of a pandemic. And the mayor refuses to meet in a public meeting with um, the activists. And instead they're, they have to deal with police and are getting threatened with arrests and legal action for being on public property. Do you have any insight into the situation that you can share with our viewers and or even just a summary for those who don't know? Yeah, the summary is a complicated one. You'll see over my shoulder, there's a picture uh, with Kayon and Kermisha and some other phenomenal organizers from McMaster. That was taken, actually, it just came up because it was a year to a day, six years to the day when I was sworn in as a city councilor and my first official capacity was to attend a Black Lives Matter rally on the forecourt of City Hall. That's six years ago. So for people who are coming to the defund conversation, who are coming to the Black Lives Matter moment recently, thinking that this has just come up from nowhere, are completely oblivious to the generational struggle that's happened. So generation after generation has had to fight for, gain, regain, sometimes lose basic civil rights that are afforded to most Canadians, but as we know, are disproportionately not to black and indigenous people. And so my, you know, my work on, it's, it's just fundamentally justice. You know, we, we could call it, uh, you know, uh, civil rights. I call it the new civil rights sometimes. But at the end of the day, look, this is fundamentally a conversation around where society prioritizes along the continuum of social policy. And I would share with you from my perspective, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, water, shelter, health, including mental health, including supports for people who use drugs, would be the beginning intervention and continuum, after which 
you know, as you go to the right, you, you find a liberalized approach of education, which, which is kind of a mythology of a bootstraps. If you just go to university, it, everybody gets the opportunity. If you just work hard enough, you can ascend your class and your material condition. And then as you go further into liberalism or neoliberalism, you have the economy, jobs. If we just give people jobs, then this, of course, will be solved. And then on the end, in the furthest right of the social continuum, which has been where it's been stuck for so long, is law enforcement. That we know if a child doesn't go to school fed, it's unlikely they're going to learn. This is going back to the Maslow. We know that if they don't read at a third grade level by third grade, their likelihood of succeeding in high school is dramatically reduced. We know that Hamilton Center has some of the highest amounts of child poverty. Uh, we know that the barriers to education are real and increasing, and the prospects of even getting a degree, as both of you have had, to graduate into this precarious job environment still has absolutely uh, uh, disastrous outlooks for young people. And we also know that in Hamilton, I'll keep it hyper-local, that in 2005, just shortly after I graduated from university myself 15 years ago, the police budget was $100 million. By any account, $100 million is a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And what people aren't talking about is that in the ensuing 15 years of austerity and cuts and the reduction of social housing, purpose-built rentals, the astronomical inflation on rent and cost of living, well, wages stay the same. That same police budget has almost doubled. It is now $172 million a year and counting, looking at $175 million a year. We know that all social programs combined are somewhere like $150 million, all combined, that housing is a small fraction of that. Fast forward to COVID. You know, fast forward to a housing market in Hamilton and a catastrophic pandemic that has caused panic and economic disruption that has forced people out of the hidden poverty because let's face it, tent cities and, and encampments are not new to Hamilton. They've, they're just now in plain sight and people are being faced with the uncomfortable truth of what poverty looks like in Canada. I'm, I'm sorry if I get fired up on this stuff and probably talk too, too long or too much, but... No, don't apologize. We also get fired up about this and we appreciate it. So, so what that's done is essentially forced us into a scenario where the people who have provided the primary frontline community care, who have spent eight, nine months delivering food and hygiene products and care to people in this community, have watched these people be... Uh, targeted and attacked and moved along and displaced time and time again, who finally said enough is enough, did a direct action in demonstration on the footsteps in the forecourt of City Hall to call attention to what City Council has refused to accept as an immediate threat and responsibility to the residents, which is the impending doom of a 
winter, a snowfall, a winter where people we know will die for sure in misery in, in, in this upcoming winter simply because we haven't provided a system that can provide them with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the base necessities of life. And thank you for laying that out actually with the history that I think that paints the picture really nicely for our listeners as well. You know, we get focused on the moment and social media is on the moment, but this is not disconnected from the last 50 plus years. 15 short term, 50 definitely. But let's also be clear about something else that tends to happen. Police have a communications style. Uh, they, They are trained on communications in a way that very few people I think fully appreciate and understand. They call it verbal judo. It's the ability to kind of present and maintain power in a continuum of force. And so the modus operandi that I have experienced and observed across the country, including through personal experience, is the following. First they deny, then they discredit, and then they dig in. And the discrediting is a form of what your, your listeners will know as gaslighting, where uh, they will try to say that the, the demands and the response of the brutal deaths of people in the streets is irrational and is completely unrealistic, right, as a way of framing the discussion that negates the fact that they have doubled their budgets without any oversight for the last 15 years while we continue to defund healthcare, defund mental health, criminalize people living with poverty, criminalize people who use drugs, while we have allowed the wholesale commodification of every single aspect of our lives from our heat and our hydro to our food to our water to our shelter. And they expect people not to react in despair and desperation. So that's what, we, that's what we're really faced with, in my opinion. And then it becomes an issue of semantics. Now, like Obama was in the news um, yesterday, I think, for his comments on defunding the police. And I'm, I'm actually glad that those came to light because now at least uh, the mainstream is talking about it again. Um, I think that these things come and they ebb and flow and it's nice for it to be back on you know at least trending where the people are talking about it nonstop. yeah and look like i have done the like people are always positioning my politics as being one of anti-police and i first want to say police are the symptom of a, an extractionary capitalist system that requires a state monopoly on violence to enforce what people in their hearts already know to be unjust Police are doing the role that society has allowed for them to evolve into. And they will continue to play that role at the direction of politicians and power within this country. And so I don't fault police for being police, uh, but I do challenge the power structures that go beyond what their original intention or at least theoretical intention was in terms of keeping the peace and maintaining democracy, which has been completely usurped with the idea of law and order, right? Where we can see yellow vesters, you know, where I witnessed a, a, a unhinged white supremacist pull a school bus up into a peaceful disruption on the forecourt of City Hall and get nothing but respect and deference from the so-called law and authority in this city. I've watched neo-Nazis and religious bigots get more respect 
than people who are with care and compassion calling for something as basic and as dignified as, as universal housing for people. That's offensive to me. Yeah, it is offensive. And the interesting thing is I always, <laughs> the, the relationship that the police have to um, the municipal government and the mayor, in my mind, it's always supposed to, there's supposed to be a, some level of separation there. But I think recently, at, at least the current events have shown that there is really that that's a facade i think it seems like yeah so there was a really inter- there's a really interesting i'm going to say disconnect or or cognitive dissonance between power and authority as it relates to municipal levels of government and what they're able to do and the provincial powers that regulate all municipalities and so police boards are set up to be nonpartisan I'm going to say legal fictions or illusions of oversight over policing, which is basically mandated at a provincial level. Like we don't really have local policing anymore. That's not a thing. And and even more so, one of the lines that I try to draw for people, uh, particularly the liberals out there, the, the, the faux aggressives, the people with BLM in their bios and no race analysis beyond identity politics. That Bill C-51 that was supported by Justin Trudeau provided a mandate to every single province to have an anti-terrorism protocol. The former minister, the former uh, solicitor general in Ontario, a guy by the name of Yasser Nakfi, went around the province pretending like he was just hearing about street checks and carding for the same time. His ministry was sending memos to police services saying, and I quote, Street checks provide the unique opportunity for the mass collection of data. So the federal government has given a mandate to provinces to do these fusion centers of security that that rely on multi-state actors, local police services, campus police, you know, uh, CBSA, uh, the 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 national uh, electronic um, security. You know that we have in Canada, CSIS, RCMP, and all of the other bodies within the United States of America. So the FBI, CIA, like all of them are interconnected in a way that takes local law and order or local keeping the peace and completely blows it way out. And why they do it is because you can appoint some local yokel to a police board or even a local yokel city councilor or mayor for that matter to give citizens the illusion of local oversight when there is absolutely none. I have watched the chief of police tell the mayor, no, I'm not doing that. Defy the chair of the police board, Lloyd Ferguson, and say, sorry, that's not within your purview. And what they say is that police boards are in charge of policy and the chief of police is, is in charge of operations. What they don't tell the public, by the way, is that the chiefs of police determine that all things are operational. So there is no local control. And then, and then they manufacture crime when, when their security theater doesn't work, and here we are. Here we are. So the people who are doing direct action are engaging in an intergenerational, long fought struggle of civil disobedience in a way that recognizes when laws may be legal but not just right like we have a legal system and not a justice system 
Because if we can't access it in the same ways, then there's no justice within that legal framework. And that's what's being displayed time and time and time again. When the city wrung their hands about how they couldn't get rid of the neo-Nazis and the yellow vesters in front of City Hall, that civil liberties and free speech, right, were, prime, were, the, were, the, were the primacy of the debate. And yet, where are those voices now for this free speech and the direct uh, action that's happening on the on the forecourt of City Hall. Let's talk about the federal police. Let's talk about defunding the RCMP. The Justice Basterash Review that just came out found that racism, sexism, homophobia are systemic in the RCMP, you know, confirming what we know um, and can't be controlled by punishing a few bad apples. Is there a response to that? Federally, is the NDP pushing a response to that? You know, we believe the solution is is the defunding, um, but is there any action being taken? So, uh, I love the question. This is a lot like T-ball for me. I mean, clearly, from the first weeks I was in the House of Commons, I was I've been talking about white supremacy, and I've been talking about institutional white supremacy from the House of Commons, all the way to every aspect of federal government. Uh, you know, as a new Democrat, I have called on Bill Blair, who we'll get into in a second, to apologize to the black community for his role in the original practice of racial profiling and street checks. Bill Blair name, was named the Minister of Public Safety by Justin Trudeau after having been the chief of police in Toronto responsible for the implementation of the racist and pernicious practice of street checks and racial profiling. He failed his way up. And in doing so, what we are clear about is the thin blue line is actually very thick. That as a, you know, a career uh, leader in policing, there is no intention or appetite for him to deconstruct the institutions that catapulted him into a position of power and authority. That when you have the, the, the commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, time and time again, fail in her basic cultural competence is a reflection that somebody at the highest level having had decades of training, decades of training, continues to fail with the most basic and general comprehension in what racism is. And what do they do? What's the first thing they do? Deny. What's the second thing they do? They begin to discredit. And then they dig in. And so that will never change. What needs to happen and what we saw movement on in the summer, I'm a member of the, uh, the Parliamentary Black Caucus, was a call that reflected community to, to basically uh, defund and reallocate services and, and, and money. And, and the reallocation, I know for some people within leftist circles, they feel like it derails the conversation about abolition. But it is fundamentally a checkbook question, right? Like it's, it's, it's a budget question about where we're going to put these other interventions. And so I've sponsored petitions. We have uh, our, our party was, in, was led on creating a whole committee looking at racism within the RCMP that continues to see witnesses to this day. And we're going to continue down that line. So 
The conversation is happening. It's being pushed by us as fourth party opposition. But as long as Bill Blair remains the minister responsible for quote unquote public safety, inclusion, in, in, inclusive of the police, there'll be no fundamental changes. I can assure you that. It'll just be more faux aggressive aesthetics. And it's come up a little bit now, and it's, it's rather obvious that um, you are, uh, myself and other young people, I think would identify one of the most radical voices in parliament right now. And um, we wanted to ask about, like, does it does it get lonely? And do you get support from your party or your constituents? Like, how how is that being kind of sometimes a lone voice, but a voice that um, millennials like and millennials resonate with, but also not millennials, just people who are struggling, everyday people who are struggling and don't see their needs voiced um at all but we see little clips of you once in a while on the timeline or sometimes on tv and uh, it seems like it's a lonely fight but you have people outside of it (laughs) yeah so this is what i'll share with you i feel like i feel like i'm i'm so you know in 2017 i would have shared that analysis in 2017 I was not a new Democrat. I'm a new, new Democrat. And I didn't see myself reflected in the party, particularly was not, I'm not a tall mall care guy. I'm not a tall mall care new Democrat. Uh, I wouldn't join the party. I wouldn't join tall mall care's party. I didn't see my politics reflected in the party. I didn't see my people reflected in the party. That was my reality. And that is the observation of a lot of people. However, a lot has changed since Tal Mulcair, and unfortunately, people are stuck on the 2015 like failures of the NDP. And one of the other challenges with federal politics is so much time and energy is vested in the concentration of time and attention in the charismatic leader that the voices of uh, parliament are like not even o- overshadowed, they're completely eclipsed by the sound bites of leadership. One of the things I've been able to do as a geriatric millennial, 1980s, you know, maybe for some a millennial, maybe for some not, was bring a new way to communicate directly to people that didn't rely on press, press releases and clippings where I could speak directly to people. But I'll share this. I am not new and I am not alone. Google Romeo Saganosh, Google, you know, radical voices of the past um, who are just incredible, strong voices. And, you know, even in today, you guys had Nikki on. There's lots of incredible people. My seatmate, Leah Gazan, is fire. And, and, here's, and here's the thing. Like, here's what's real. My caucus, I agree and align with my caucus on 85 to 90% of all the issues. There's, there's agreement. What we don't get the opportunity to do, unfortunately, is have free and democrat like free votes on, on matters of conscience or matters of like significance, where they still use the whip in those ways. But, you know, on most topics, I would generally align with the analysis of my caucus. It's not always the case, though, that what's picked up by media actually reflects positions we've taken. Like, I deal with party people, party poopers all the time, pooping on the party. And they're like, where were you on this? And how come you didn't say that? And I have to send them clips directly. 
what do you mean? You know, like I had people come for us and say the NDP didn't do anything about defund the police, which is a complete erasure of the over 500 national syndicated interviews that I did on defund the police, where I used plain language and spoke directly to the issues. But because they didn't get it in the way that they wanted it or from the people they wanted it, it's like it wasn't good enough. And that's a problematic analysis. So, you know, like I get lots of love and solidarity. There are very rare instances where I even clash with the party in terms of things that I've said. And keep in mind, I've said some things. I've said some things. And I meant every word. And in instances where, you know, maybe I said too much, I retracted or, or uh, and where there's been miscommunication, I've clarified it and owned it. Thank you for that. And um, we're going we're gonna to shift a little bit, but we really appreciate this first part, getting to talk about these issues we care about so much. But we put out some questions online, and Ryan and I are both, uh, you know, students and non-students, but, like, people who had taken loans to go to school. And this is a big issue that n- yes. we don't think people are really racing in uh, government right now, but... Uh, the the OSAP freezes. Um, OSAP was unfrozen, or the National Student Loan Services of Canada payments. Um, but money was still taken in November um, from people like me, um, and multiple payments. Yet we still got notices that payments were late. And when I tweeted out, "Do people have questions for these three MPs?" That was a popular one where people were like, what's happening right now with our student loans in Canada and also um, student debt co- uh, cancellation, but also uh, it's a pandemic. How are young people who are already struggling and so precarious expected by this government that's in power to pay back our student loans in a pandemic um, and also get our credit scores ruined from them having a clerical issue, but also them like passing a freeze, but then still taking our money for November? So I guess, can we hear your thoughts on that? Oh, I got I got big thoughts on that (laughs) and pretty strong feelings about it, too. I got big feelings on it. Uh, You know, this government is all aesthetics and no action. They don't care. It's not that they're not smart. Some of the smartest people in the world work policy within the liberal government. They know, based on their focus groups, based on their polling, uh, what the magic calculus is in order for them to win the next election, and that's what drives it. So if they don't believe that young people are going to be mobilized for them, they will completely uh, sidestep the question and ignore them. So... I was in committee two days ago doing a report on public accounts on the financial assistance program, and I called to question the fact that like, the, the response from the liberal government was that we need to provide more financial literacy. If students just budget, all the bullshit neoliberal capitalistic language of liberalism that basically puts the onus on the individual rather than taking responsibilities for the systems and the absolute structures and institutions that commodify and capitalize on every aspect of our lives. Yesterday, I was in committee talking about, you know, the fact that we put 750 billion, big B, billion dollars out the back door to big banks in Bay Street. 750 billion dollars went in liquidity supports and what they call regulatory loosening. They call it that because the, the system that, that essentially ensnares students into perpetual cycles of death, right, and debt is, is basically illusionary. 
at the money you're borrowing, you're actually borrowing into existence because it allows the banks to lend out. If they got $10, they can lend out. Uh, if, they, if they have $2, they can lend out 10 and get paid back on the $8 that doesn't really exist. Like that's fractional reserve banking at its core. I know that's an oversimplistic language, but when I asked the, uh, the budgetary officer yesterday, basically where did that money come from, the $750 billion? First of all, why $750 billion? That's a pretty round number. Like you just make it up because it's big? Like why? That was the answer that happened in 08 with the Americans when they asked like a trillion dollars, why that number? They're like, well, we thought it was big enough for the scale. He basically said that they lent banks the money to do that by printing money. That's liquidity, financial, like quantitative easing. And I'm like, well, why can't we do that for social programs then? And he used an economic theory that that would cause inflation. And I said, the banks that you lend that money to are flowing that out in dividends. They already have profits that they're sitting on in cash and liquidity, and you are giving them $750 billion. Why don't we have a guaranteed basic livable income? Why don't we have tuition-free education? Why don't we have housing and universal pharmacare and healthcare when you could put $750 billion out the back door in four days without any scrutiny and print it by the Bank of Canada? Are you telling me that we can't get into a monetary theory that results in taking care of people within this country, everybody? And he did not have an answer for that because that is the system by design. The system requires high unemployment in order to keep wages suppressed. The system requires precarity in order to keep unions busted. They don't want to pay benefits. They don't want to pay pensions. They need you in debt to be the good working class cogs in the wheel with the illusion, under the illusion, that you're going to ascend to a, a, a unicorn middle class uh, existence. Yeah, the, the middle class prosperity. <laughs> How's that minister? It's it actually like I, I throw up in my mouth a little bit and I and I and I and I wanna rename it. It's like it's really the millionaire class. Yeah. You know, and or it's the billionaire class prosperity and the millionaires who are working hard to join them. That's what gets me the most out of that, is that every time they say the minister of middle class, they say and those working hard to join them. And it is the biggest kick in the teeth to people who are struggling to get by, that somehow it's their fault that they're living in poverty, that somehow for students it's your fault that you have a master's degree and a PhD degree and all you could do is you know, uh, find the best barista job at Starbucks which might happen to have slightly better benefits than another place. When we were told to get those degrees in order to succeed economically. So one of the questions that I put to the, the, the deputy minister responsible for uh, financial literacy on the financial aid program was that if she was giving sound financial literacy advice to students, knowing that this is one of the most precarious employment markets in generations and that COVID is going to forever change the market, I said, would you even advise students, like young people go to school and come out forty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in debt? Like that's actually bad advice. You know, and she didn't really have much of an answer for that either. So we're putting these questions. Like, I need you guys to know that one of the things I'm committed to is connecting people to the process of government. So I constantly put out clips 
I live stream committees. I live stream question period where people are at, which is why I do all the podcasts I'm invited to, to speak to people where they're at. One of the things we have been thinking about, and this was actually also a submitted question, this sort of unbridled growth of the economy that's being done through through bailing out the banks and that that economic theory, we are thinking about it in terms of climate change as well. And so do you think green growth is possible or do we need degrowth in order to actually um, save the planet? Yeah. And so, you know, this is this is beyond the I'll, I'll scale back the jargon because the jargon is used conveniently for spin when you talk about green growth, which is really a capitalistic liberal frame, a green party frame that somehow we can tax and spend our way out of catastrophic climate change. We cannot. We cannot. Like when people talk about a radical position, a radical position is the collision course that we have on the Interparliamentary Committee on Climate Change that knows that we only have like eight years left and we're still not doing the kind of fundamental changes that are necessary to become a decarbonized economy. And now conveniently during COVID, provinces, the federal government are using this, this time of uncertainty to continue to push through projects. And one of the most absurd things that you can hear in the House of Commons that's only available to people who tune in is the constant argument between liberals and conservatives about who simps for oil and gas the most, who gives the most money to oil and gas. You have, they wear pins and ties that say, I love oil and gas. How are you gonna love, how are you gonna love like fossil fuels? I love workers. I love workers and I love working class solidarity, but I don't love multinational multi-billion dollar companies that privatize all the profit and socialize all the debt. And, you know, I've gone in about like the, the oil wells. I was in on that. Like who owns that liability? Why are we picking that up? The economic theory on liberal, big L and small L liberalism perpetuated by the, by the vast policies and majorities from my experience of Green Party members as well is this idea that we can both be uh, eco-conscious and capitalist. You cannot. Like they're just, in, they're inherently fundamentally opposing philosophies and structures. There's no such thing as infinite growth. I'm just thinking about workers as well, and it's come up a few times during this interview, and obviously um, class-based struggle is something that the NDP was kind of founded on. Uh, and labor struggles and came out of a strike and um, the Winnipeg general strike in 1919. So we're over 100 years out, I guess. And I'm thinking also about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Naomi Klein when they put out their Green New Deal video. They talked a lot about how we can have green jobs that are meaningful and fulfilling and pay a living wage. And Fight for 15 has been a campaign going on in um, Ontario for so long, throughout Canada, throughout North America, I would say. Um, $15 doesn't seem like much now, so let's just call it a living wage. So my big question to you, I guess, is um, do you see the NDP in the future kind of integrating some form of a Green New Deal and a living wage kind of campaign at once that's that's different than what the Green Party does and what was just described in your answer? Yeah, I think like there's the, the challenge we have in the, the Goliath popular culture of America is that we often get swallowed up in 
their policies and politics that don't necessarily have a neat application to Canada. And the Green New Deal, I think, is one of those. We ran on a platform that, that is arguably one of the most progressive platforms in a generation that talked about the transition, that talked about building 500,000 affordable homes, that talked about you know energy retrofits and all these different things, and a transition. But I would argue that the Green New Deal, AOC's Green New Deal, um, and, and you know, is is really if you if we're looking at the timeline, was the Leap Manifesto of 2015. You know what I mean? Like, like Avi and and Naomi brought that to an NDP convention, and that was like catastrophic. People lost their minds because we the, the part of the problem was the work wasn't done with organized labor to get very crystal clear about what those jobs would be. You can't talk to workers about abstract jobs in theory. There needs to be direct policy interventions that shows the one-to-one sustainability of the material conditions that they already have. And I think that that also didn't happen in the States, by the way. I, I, I don't know that I saw that in, in real direct ways. And I think that was one of the earlier failings of the leap. But you fast forward to now, and like the leap is just taken for granted. Yes, obviously. But I think the challenge that we have here that's different than in the States is what the federal government because of Section 92 and the divisional levels of power, what they actually have within their purview. So we could do, uh, you know, a living wage for federally contracted workers. And that was in our platform, by the way, 900,000 workers. We talked about that. So we already had that. Many people don't know because they haven't read our platform uh, because we haven't been able to use the same kind of star power and popular education that the Democratic Party social justice uh, the justice dems have and folks like naomi and others we just don't we don't scale in that way to be able to simplify and popularize their ideas but i challenge you to go back and look at a new deal for the people and show us where we like drastically differ or fall short from what they've offered like bernie sanders in my opinion if you look at his entire career and voting record would be a middle of the road new democrat the juxtaposition that they have in the states is they live in a special political hell where where the liberal party and the new democratic party are in the same party so if i was in a party you know with bill morneau i would i people would think i was anarchist because of the juxtaposition but here you know, if you look at some of his stuff on guns and like, yeah, dental care, we're talking about dental care. Don Davies has been fighting for dental care for days. When I say days, I mean like gener- like for, for his entire time there. Uh, today, Scott Duvall, which by the way, in American popular culture would, 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 would be like a, um, you know, a gravel or one of these guys, uh, like, you know, an old time like guy. He just introduced a bankruptcy bill that would not allow corporations to steal pensions at bankruptcy. That's an incredibly important bill, but Scott Duvall is never going to get the credit for that from progressive circles because people don't know. We could put it out there, but it's not in a popular consumption scale and velocity. And I challenge folks that are watching, if they went back and looked at what we've put forward throughout COVID, fighting for universal basic uh, supports, fighting for the $2,000, fighting for the wage subsidy. And I know a lot of people have problems with the wage subsidy, but at the end of the day, keeping workers employed is a thing. 
not everybody has the benefit of, of um, benefits or pensions or strong collective agreements. You know, if you look at what we did fighting for, uh, for the meager supports that the government gave for people with disabilities, they wouldn't have done that if we weren't in the House. It just wouldn't have happened. And they wouldn't have done that if we were members of some watered-down, like, Democratic equivalent party. Now that you mentioned it, let's let's talk about it actually, CERB and and the wage subsidy and the fact that we're basically entered lockdown 2.0, at least where we are, like like Nash was in, in Peel, I'm in Toronto. Um, and and we have we have nothing anymore. Um, and and it's it's really hard. Like it's by design though. To be clear, they know every step along the way they know they're excluding people. All the social programs combined, $100 billion. $750 billion to banks in Bay Street. They tell you what their priorities are, fam. To be young and liberal in this country is absurd. To be in university and support this liberal party is absurd. It is like a betrayal of your own self-interest with this this maple wash thought that maybe someday you could be in the hollow halls of power when that's just not how it works. The greatest future indicator of wealth is your past generational wealth. That's it. The people who ascend in, in ridiculous ways, you know, uh, well, gosh, I'm middle class now, but if I just work hard enough, I could be a millionaire, are, are kidding themselves in really tragic and real ways. So they know. And I'll be clear for people who didn't follow along. I've had too much coffee, by the way, today, which is why I'm so fired up. Uh, is because, like, look, when they fir- when CERB first happened and we said $2,000 universal, do you know what their first offer was? $900. Their first stated policy, this is public record, a $900 EI scheme. Why do I call it a scheme? Because on employment insurance, that's paid by workers and employers, not the government. $900. Could you imagine going from employed in a well-paying job to $900 a month and still have the obligations of the bills? Their wage subsidies, you know, rolled through uh, banks. The rent subsidies went straight to commercial. And every step along the way, by the way, they tried to make it look like new, they gaslit people and make it look like new Democrats didn't know what they were talking about. That's not the federal government's job. Federal government can't do that, Right. How is it the federal government can give wage subsidies to small businesses but not tenants? Yeah. Where in the law does that follow? And we're watching the eviction blitzes right now. Yeah, those are those are both the same jurisdiction if they would be anything. Well, the Health Act is very clear. It's a partnership. And the transfer payments in the original Health Act were supposed to be 50-50. Now, under successive liberal and conservative governments, they're 22% transfers. That's what austerity looks like. And the analogy that I like to give people is that liberals are surgeons. With liberals, it is a death by a thousand cuts of austerity. Doug Ford is a butcher. But make no mistakes about it, conservatives and liberals have the same corporate agenda. 
people are homeless in Ontario at this very moment, not because of Doug Ford. And I know that people clutch their pearls. 15 years of Dalton McGindy and Kathleen Wynne, legislated poverty and ODSP in Ontario works. They never once increased social assistance. They never, they never increased the rates that were livable. They came in in the fourth quarter with a guaranteed basic income that was still legislated poverty below the poverty line. They had all the power in majorities. And they never delivered for working class people. They never improved the material condition of people living on fixed income. So what what do you think, what, what can people do now, at, like in this part of the pandemic, right? We just, I think people feel helpless now that... Don't fall into despair. Part of the shock and awe of capitalism is to make people retract into their own isolation. And my fear socially and why these podcasts are so incredibly important is because our human spirit begs for us to stay connected in community. It begs for us to be with and around people. And we have a fight or flight in front of us. And I'm suggesting that we cannot cut and run, that we cannot retract into our own basic survival and like look if you you got to do that you got to do that but this system is set up to put people into a place of despair where the only thing they do is like keep their head down and if they got two jobs maybe they got to get a third uh you know don't worry as long as you got what you're no be angry that is valid be outraged what we see on the footsteps of city hall today is a rational outrage to suffering what is irrational is seeing the suffering and having no response. That is irrational. There is a pathology there. I'm not, not going to get into any kind of you know, metaphors that, that, are, that are... But there is a pathology to somebody who can look at suffering and not be moved into anger, outrage. And so I'm suggesting to people now more than ever, it's critical that we not fall back, that we continue to organize. And if it was in regular times, I would say door to door, street to street, neighborhood to neighborhood. We can't do that. Now it's podcast to podcast, tweet to tweet, post to post, you know, whatever, wherever and however you can relate to people, phones, whatever, community art, whatever. Find ways to, to, you know, center around action and mobilization and organizing around shared values. And like um, we've talked in this episode about at the police, we've talked about shared values, we've talked about kind of the, we're, we're gonna get more towards it, but the egregious history of Canada and um, with calls for defunding and calls to, to discussions around the abhorrent living conditions of people, we're thinking about how many have also called for decolonization and land back um, and what that looks like. And so we'd wanna ask you in your role, what does decolonization look like or supporting uh, people who have these calls for decolonization and land back? That is a fundamental question, right? Like this is 2015, Justin Trudeau selling the aesthetics of reconciliation, the great Canadian lie. And 40 minutes from my house, the road to reconciliation is very much under construction. I am an elected member of parliament. I'm a proud member of parliament representing Hamilton Center in a colonial institution, the most colonial institution of the country, the House of Commons. 
well, maybe the Senate is actually the most colonial institution, but second, the House of Commons. I recognize my role as a representative of the Crown. I recognize all of our roles as treaty people. And the decolonization begins with the education that truth must come before reconciliation. Canada is a legal fiction. Most Canadians are taught through basic geography that the map that we know to be Canada is in fact legally Canada, when in law it is actually not. That there are treaties and unceded claims that go back to time immemorial, and time immemorial is before the legal recognition of both British North America and the Crown and any kind of uh, uh, colonization of these lands. So these, these treaties, these agreements um, that started off nation to nation within indigenous communities uh, that are governed by indigenous law that runs parallel and is equal standing internationally, as does Canadian colonial law. Today, the Attorney General, David Lemeny, presented the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. There is an international body of law that supersedes national law. There is a natural law that supersedes any written and and human-made law. And so from that perspective, for me, what reconciliation looks like is a popular education of the uncomfortable truths that we maple wash our history and we erase ongoing struggles against the continued genocide of First Nations and Inuit in this country and Métis in this country. And so for me, that's direct action on land back, a very, again, deny, discredit, dig in. The Haudenosaunee have been in a a legal colonial court for 26 years at the federal level, nation to nation, on a land claim, on the track of land that is now called 1492 land back and is erroneously called Mackenzie Meadows. 26 years the government has dithered on settling that claim, and it's not because they're altruistic, by the way, it's because they know they don't have legal title to that claim. The second piece is that the province is using in my opinion, wholly inappropriate ways to settle land claims by way of direct injunctions. Provincial courts are subnational governments to the Crown, and the treaties are nation to nation. Our own Supreme Court under Delgamut recognizes that hereditary chiefs have the legal title to the land. They recognize under Delgamut, under the points, that there must be an occupation of the land in order to claim the land. To ask the land offenders to leave their claim is to negate their claim and to dispossess them of that land legally by colonial law. These are all facts. These aren't opinions. Third, municipalities absolutely do not have, in my opinion, the jurisdiction to provide building permits on territories that are under dispute. In legal language, I'm not a lawyer. There's lawyers out there, they might correct me. But if it was in Hamilton, I would tell somebody that that is what's called a material non-disclosure, that they are not telling the commercial interests of that deal that the land that they are purchasing or investing in is actually not legally under title to the province or 
the municipality. And this is this this is the 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 fraud that is happening on these territories. And so I have directly supported 1492. I've directly visited them. Hamilton is home to 20,000 identified, self-identified Indigenous uh, Inuit and Métis. And I also believe that for all of those people who are saying there needs to be a peaceful resolution, that those have been peaceful, direct, civil uh, uh, actions on those territories, escalated only by the state monopoly of violence called the OPP. And I'll go further to say that for those who are suggesting that they should find a peaceful, lawful resolution, what do you think 26 years in court looks like? This is the end of the result of almost three decades of denial of basic natural law for a people that every single municipality in this province has within the provincial plan, something that's literally called places to grow urban and suburban expansions, except for indigenous people of these lands that are, that are currently situated. What was once 500,000 acres of Haldeman track is now they're sitting on 5% of that land. So that is a dispossession that is violent and is intergenerational and is unlawful in my opinion. I'll, ju- I'll just speak to the, the federal provincial divide. I mean, the province, the province is the crown as well and the province has obligations under treaties as well. And while they might not be the ones involved in negotiating um, disputed territories, they still have an obligation to uphold treaties and, and surrender when, when to the federal government when it's uncertain. So I would suggest that my understanding is such that unless they're new treaties, in some cases this might be the case, right, where, where some bands under the Indian Act uh, entered into new treaties, historical treaties that, that go time immemorial that predate the BNA, that provinces would have standing in the claim, but I don't think are actually party to. And so if you look back to 2006, the OPP, it would be understood, had no jurisdiction on that claim, that they, that they are not like that. So to be clear, Six Nations of the Grand River, uh, all even Indian Act territories are not subject to the province in that way. Yes, that is true. Yes, that very, that, that, there's no dispute about that. So what, where I think we get into problems is that when there's confusion on that, uh, the province would say that this is our planning act that determines, and our provincial courts that determines the injunctions that intervene in inappropriate ways. Let's, let's switch gears a bit and, and let's talk about the convention that was recently announced. Um, do you have plans for the convention? What sort of policy resolutions do you want to see passed? Um, what ideas? I'm going to be very candid with people. I'm not a convention organizer. I went to 2017. I was supposed to be the last speaker, and it got bogged down in two issues of Palestine and pipelines, where there was no real resolutions. And in fact, it, you know, it created a system of, ext- I'm going to say like, extreme uh, uh, adversarial politics. And these are systems that are used within the party 
to prioritize or deprioritize centrally when in my mind, an ideal democratic response to that, particularly in a digital age, would be to say one person, one vote, um, and we just do like a, a democratic process on the policies in terms of how we create our manifestos and our, and our platforms. But the traditional conventions are problematic in that you got to have money, you got to be a, a delegate, and you got to have money to attend, to even attend. And so I try not to get bogged down on what, and, and people, quite frankly, only interact in the party sometimes at convention, which is also problematic. So I, I actually believe that the work in creating uh, constituency around critical issues happens all the time, regardless of convention. And particularly now in terms of the velocity of social media, it used to be that people would say that like Twitter is an echo chamber, social media is an echo chamber. COVID has forced us to communicate in digital ways and organize in digital ways. So now everybody is assumed to be um, in, in access of that. Whereas in a party, you know, only only a thousand people out of the party at any given time, 1,500 people would have like an impact on what's going down. So I would love to see reforms in a way in which uh, membership that you would be required to have membership in good standing with like only one party. Like this idea of jumping uh, different parties is, is a bit of a challenge for me. And that, and that I would encourage like organizers to get involved with the writing association to make sure that they nominate people who share their values so they don't feel like they have to lobby their members of, of, of caucus or their elected officials. I should, new Democrats shouldn't have to lobby me for issues they should know in advance about the issues that I stand for based on the work that I've done. There's going to be emerging things, right? Like there's a, a big complexity within our party that people don't fully appreciate that thinks much like the Democratic Party that it goes federal down. And that's not actually it. Like we are a confederation just as much as Canada where our provincial parties are very autonomous. Most of our mobilization and membership is primarily connected to the provinces and then the federal level of government, which is a challenge because regionally we have some significant divides politically in this country that are often irreconcilable. Let's talk about pipelines and fracking and TMX. Yeah, yes. <laughs> this, this is leading us to the next question. The question was and is, and Nikki got this question too, uh, the provincial NDP has sometimes made decisions that are contradictory to what are determined to be socialist or progressive or left values. For example, we see this with John Horrigan's role in British Columbia, making a disingenuous effort to meet with indigenous people and the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. And in Alberta, we witnessed this. Um, and we understand the differences between provincial and federal and, and what goes on. And we understand the political, quote unquote, advantages of having a pipeline as part of your platform for short term gains. Um, however, given left politics of the NDP, these moments feel like contradictions to what is usually said and the Constitution. And how do we build a larger left and inspire more millennials to join a party when we witness such moments that are jarringly contradictory to the values espoused by the party on social media or through TikToks? <laughs> that was you led us to this question. No, I mean, I'm fine to have it. Like, look, for me, this is about systems and principles. And if we are truly democratic socialists, then there needs to be room for dissent. There needs to be room for us to disagree sometimes and be okay with that. But there is a need and a call for 
on the left a purity politic that is not conducive to building the coalitions that are necessary to gain power as a theory of change. And it's also true that we don't have within us, I believe, the political maturity to be openly in disagreement from time to time on critical issues. I believe that that's okay. And in fact, I think it's a necessary thing within our democracy to allow the value of the actual debate to carry some sway and not a overly bureaucratic class of technocrats or staffers or pollsters or consultants or stakeholders, right? And so I would put to you that I would be comfortable in a scenario that had me from time to time at odds with provincial bodies. Like, I don't believe in my heart provincial bodies stay up late at night thinking about whether or not what they say and do is going to affect the federal party. I don't think that's actually the culture provincially. Their mandates provincially is to have a theory of change or, or to have a power structure analysis within their province. And, and it's also true that I think that we, we do spend a lot of time wringing our hands about it uh, because of how sensitive things are. And I also believe it's true that people are better served when new Democrats are elected. Like, I believe Alberta, under Notley, is better served than under Jason Kenney. And I also believe, like, the people who put Rachel Notley in power in Alberta, if I'm a Democratic Socialist and believe in that Democratic process, um, deserve to have that voice there. And it's the same with John. Like, look... If you look at the COVID responses and if you look at, you know, some of the things that have happened in B.C., they have far outpaced the response of every other conservative premier and liberal premier in the country. B.C., I believe, is better served under a John Horgan leadership. Have there been times I've had to bite my tongue from being publicly critical about him? Yeah, absolutely. And do I do I want to build towards an, a, a culture where it should be OK for us to disagree and still love one each other, like, yeah, I think that that's also true. We're not there yet because we're stuck on an old model of organizing that is reactionary, both inside our party and for the party poopers outside of our party. You know, like I engage with the theoretical book clubs of the socialist uh, class that are often super well-educated and have a lot of other intersectional privileges that they don't particularly want to talk about and I just put to them, look, man, if your theory is so great, like, where's your praxis? Get somebody elected. You know, like, at the end of the day, there's one working class party in this country that is a viable working class party, and that is the New Democratic Party. And we do have a responsibility to engage at the riding levels, to nominate people, to, to be the voices, and to train people on how to find community power outside of elections. That's the praxis. You know, and like I can't be evidence based and take a position on uh, eco socialism and support infinite expansion and further investments in oil fields. I don't believe in fracking, right? That's a very different experience for somebody whose only job it is. Like, let me put this to you. And I, and I want to, I'm going to test the purity politic in my own real time way. There are environmentalists, and, 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 uh, and I say environmentalists instead of climate justice folks, who would, who would seek to come in 
to the north end of Ward 3 and shut down every steel factory that we have to stop all production of steel in Hamilton. They would do that tomorrow on the rationale of its impacts on, uh, on climate change. And if I were to apply the same kind of matrix that I apply to some of these other projects, I would have to like emphatically agree, but I actually don't because I'm close to that analysis. And I know the working people who are here, you know, struggling to get by as steel workers and all the associated jobs that come with that. And we don't have a transitionary economy. And there isn't, you know, like this, this fantasy of a, of a revolution where all of a sudden we wake up in a completely imperfect socialist society. That's not an f- actual reality. And so the only alternative to that is to say I'm willing for my neighbors and friends uh, and family to suffer in material ways here for something we haven't solved for yet as a society. And that's a very difficult position to be in. People don't want to acknowledge complexity, though, unfortunately. You know? So I I am... You know, and, and I'm also saying that, like, RCMP lethal overwatch on Wet'suwet'en is colonial violence. Like, I can say that. It's not disconnected, right? Like, I could say that with clarity. And they have a role to play in that. Thank you for answering that in a, in a, honest, in a very honest way. Yeah, man, like, look, plain talk ain't bad manners. It's an old Hamilton proverb. <laughs> yeah. And like, I know, I think I know what people want to hear, but at the end of the day, I can only just like, you know, be authentic and be real with people and hope that they start being real in their own analysis about things. How are they self-critiquing, you know, for the Maoists that are out there? Where's your self-crit on the stuff that you're doing to have these types of material changes? Because if you're not willing to sacrifice that shit, then it's then like me being a radical voice against my colleague in in say Smithers, you know, in 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 um, Skeena Balkney Valley where the the end of the TMX happens or LNG the coastal gas link actually happens to be built. It's easy for me to sit here and be like shut it down, ah! you know, and have no like conversation about it. First of all, like, I think it's bullshit that we're spending social dollars on, like, so, you know, like, there's a whole conversation around the nationalization of resources anyways, in order to allow for that just transition. And there's also an economic, a very clear economic theory that that's money that is, like, gone, that day is gone, that the per, that the valuation of oil now doesn't make any of those investments even worthwhile. But even capitalists don't want to acknowledge that. The capitalists of the Conservative Party evaporate the moment you talk about removing subsidies to oil and gas. They're gone. They're instant corporate socialists at that moment. Okay, let's, uh, before we close, we just want to speak a little bit about some international politics. Um, You know, we're interested in in building a larger international left grounded in solidarity. Nikki is part of Progressive International and is a council member. 
And, you know, you haven't been afraid to call Canada an imperialist nation internationally, have named and called out our support for the failed coup in Bolivia. Um, I'm always thinking about the way our mining companies are just extracting out of parts of Africa and Latin America. And so where where is the room for changing our foreign policy? Or do you, or like, or what is building alternatives looking like right now? That is a fundamental question and it's been, I think, a struggle for, um, you know, for the party for quite some time in terms of really defining itself because it's not a ballot box question, unfortunately. Like, it's just not something that's on the hearts and minds of people when I speak out against these issues internationally. It really, like, it really only, like, there's, there's not a huge upside in a calculated way, except for the fact, like, it's just the right thing to do. Like, except for the fact that, like, having uh, tanks that are being sold to the Saudis that are used in Yemen, the fact that in Hamilton we have L3 West Cam that does drone technology that bombs weddings in Pakistan and all these other places around the world is abhorrent. Like, that's not a Canada that I want to be a part of quite frankly, we don't, like all the best and the brightest minds that are working on that stuff, they need to be working on like the just transition. Like all of the, all of the technology that the capitalists talk about is saving us from catastrophic climate change are currently not being shifted in a resource way, in a human capital way, away from the things that perpetuate global suffering like war. And and I think like inherent domestically to my uh, conscientious objection to the overfunding of violence, which is inherent in policing, is, is a natural extension to defunding war. That I think if Canada wants to be who we say we are internationally, this maple wash 1960s blue helmet peacekeeper, then we need to have a radical rethink about the way that we deploy our military. That if we have commitments to NATO, I would love to see a place where we redirect instead of buying, you know, F-35 bombers at $50,000 an hour operation costs, that we're investing in a global emergency response to catastrophic climate change. That we are able to dispatch people around the world for fires and famines and floods that is non-military in nature. That is not, you know, uh, that is not uh, uh, imperialist, but is humanitarian. And I think when Canada starts to take on the role as being an honest broker in peace and development and humanitarianism, then we can begin to achieve this like aspirational mythology that we have about each other and ourselves. That I think is what makes liberals clutch their pearls when they can't reconcile the fact that we continue to support some of the most oppressive regimes around the world. And so I think like without even having to cherry pick the touchstones or the buzzwords or the catch bar or the shibboleths of the left by naming certain movements or countries or coups, I think we need to just like, let's go back and reflect internally about what our role is internationally. And for me, it is a defunding of imperialism and a refunding of humanitarian support around the world. You know, Karina Gould is a very learned minister or, or parliamentary secretary on international development in Burlington, a progressive as far as liberals go. Uh, she will fight for international development dollars. 
but I would challenge her to put those dollars up against the military expenditures coming out of L3 Westcam and the dollars that we're exporting in terms of war, death, and destruction around the world. And that's where we start to go beyond the faux aggressive nature of liberalism. Thank you so much. And we have a last question before we uh, wrap up. And this is an attempted amalgamation at many questions we got that were around the same kind of ask, which was that um, a lot of people replied or sent messages or emails asking how young activists could get involved in the NDP. And you've alluded to it a bit before about um, the writing associations, but specifically there were questions asked around how some have either become disillusioned with electoral politics or hesitant, or um, we've seen kind of elections uh, of activists in the past, but we've also seen that the NDP arguably has a mixed history with supporting activists and organizers. Um, So there was a candidate who had to rescind her seat in Halifax once. And so a lot of the questions we got were about, um, yeah, like activists and organizers, sometimes they tweet certain things or have made certain statements that would not even let them enter a party or join a party or move up in a party. So how are they supposed to do that when they're disillusioned after seeing things like that? And um, how, yeah, the grassroots movements can kind of create some influence within the Canada's left party? That's a fantastic question. I would begin by saying that politics 3.0 have created almost an impossible bind for an entire generation of people. That the people who are making decisions on that, by the way, have their own radical pasts. The only difference is it wasn't exploitable through opposition research and through social media. But I promise you, every single what would be now be considered establishment New Democrat, if you were to look at their history, trace back to their times on CFS and all these other uh, places, you would find a very radical nature. And so it's unfortunate that the filters that are used to exclude folks now are only applied because of where we're at through technology. And that it is also true. And again, this, this is going to be like... I often have people on the left who use a purity politic who reach out to me and be like, why do you support, why do you follow this person? Why do you support that person? They said this one thing. Like, we do that to ourselves, eh? They said this one thing. They had this one disagreement. They retweeted this one thing. You should drop them. And I really struggle with that because this notion of what solidarity looks like often comes up against what we're asking of other people to do. And so you can have organizers on the left who will critique the party without the self-critique of ways in which they're interacting with their own leftist organizing. I say all that to say this. Increasingly, though, I think it's becoming less of an issue in terms of um, what those filters look like and who is electable and who's not. And the value of this moment in terms of the velocity of social media is that you have the ability to go out and organize. The problem that we have is that we have a lot of activists and not enough organizers. So I would tell people to begin to interact with the critical theory of organizing, of theories of change, of power structures analysis, so that you can just do what the party can inherently do which is just sign up more members than the next candidate. Make the candidate so supported within their community that it's impossible for them to be vetted out in any particular way. 
and 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 conversely like i would share particularly to young people sometimes i get caught in this it's just be mindful in the way in which some of our politics accelerate online as a way of like leftist one-up personship where you end up saying some shit that you might not normally say if you had time to say it. So be beware of the immediacy of response. I get caught in this. You know, there's things that I might frame differently or have a better analysis on. Um, and it's just by volume of what I put out there. But I also take an L, like when I'm, when I'm wrong on stuff or when I've done things that I regret or have done in, in, unintentionally, recognizing that you know, impact is not intention. And so I have to be clear about where I've, where I've fallen short. Uh, and if you don't feel like you have a, like a home, find ways in which you organize within the party for people that you do support. We are now in a digital age. We're going to open it up where we're going to have honorary Hamilton Center members. So if you don't feel connected to your particular writing, I'm happy to bring you in and train you on the systems and principles of organizing because it is, it is simple. People are mystified like it's some kind of esoteric thing. It is simple, but it is not easy. It is not easy to do the work, to organize in your community, to know who the person is that owns the dry cleaner, the woman at the corner store, the imams, the rabbis, the preachers, the tenants organizers, to do the deep organizing and relation work. What people want is the result. People go, oh, well, how do I do what you do? I'm like, start 10 years ago. That's what I did. You can't just parachute back in somewhere or show up somewhere and be like, yo, I have like fire Twitter analysis and I'm going to now lead this movement. If there's no movement to lead, right? You have to, they call it building a movement for a reason. And so that's what I would put to people is like Bernie is in his 70s, fam. That's a long time. No, it's a good, it's a very good point, and I really appreciate it. And we appreciate that you spend so much time with us. Um, I do want to ask you one last fun question. We didn't do anything fun. You do a lot of car karaoke sometimes. Yeah. What are your top like three car karaoke songs? So I normally so I normally hand it over to the folks that I'm with. Uh, but right now I'm on some Tracy Chapman. <laughs> okay. You know, obviously talking about a revolution, crossroads. You know, like I'm on some Tracy Chapman. Um, that's probably where I would go because it's fairly easy enough to sing along with. Mm. And you can like fake a falsetto enough to like maybe carry it for a minute. It's so funny. How about you? What would you do? Oh, this is a toughie right now. What is like, what am I blasting to just like dance to? There's like this Afghan song I just discovered yesterday that I've been jamming to. Um, yeah. How about you, Ryan? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I would put something in a foreign language as well, just for fun. Maybe K-pop. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. If I could crack the fun. code of, like, the stands <laughs> online, like, that's popular revolution. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? They actually, like, really mobilized, <laughs> like, shutting down police apps. Like, it was really amazing. Yeah. I, I yeah. think I need to bring them on, like, find a local Canadian... We're going to like online, whatever, personality, K-pop, yeah. K-pop f- folks and, and like have them on and just like figure out how to culture jam that. Just create a, a bunch of radical leftists. Where can people find you online? Oh, yeah. Obviously, uh, Matthew Green, NDP on all channels. 
I, I am dabbling with Twitch and doing a lot of live streams there. Uh, I'm trying to find people where they're at. And so, you know, I'm joining anywhere that I'm invited, which, which is like pot, lots of podcasts, lots of um, streaming, and just trying to like stay connected with people. This is like my digital door knock. You know, like, oh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Digital door knocking. It's a really good way to put it. We appreciate that you gave us so much time. No doubt. No doubt. I look forward to seeing whatever you all have to do next. I know it's going to be bad. Yeah. Anytime. Anytime at all. Yeah. And we hope that we can have you back on in the future. Thank you. These episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Hibipti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha. 